I'm really excited to speak to you tonight. Um, kind of chomping at the bit. Uh, because I'm, I'd like to speak tonight about, um, well, let's put it this way, I'd like to share the good news. <clears throat> you know, of course, when we, when we come on retreat, often the first insights are, you could say, they're bad news. You see how tight your body is. You see how much of the time we're um, wanting things, liking and disliking, wanting things to be different than the way they are, and, and about our thinking minds. Need I say more? Um, but as I see all of you, after having sat for three days, uh, your, your lenses are opening, the apertures are widening, uh, and I'm thinking of the passage from a poem by Rumi where he says, why do you stay in prison when the door is so wide open? Come out of the tangle of fear thinking, live in silence, flow down and down and down in ever widening rings of being. And I can see that as you've slowly, slowly, through moments of mindfulness, you have uh, moment by moment been coming out of the tangle of fear thinking. It doesn't mean that you haven't had lots of fearful thoughts or worrisome thoughts, but the moment that you've become aware that you were thinking, or the moment that you've become aware of, of anything for that matter, uh, you could say that the uh, the light has shined. You've, as one of my teachers put it, uh, Tulku Ergen Rinpoche, he says, that moment that you wake up to where you are, you have already arrived at the superior place. No higher mountain to climb. And of course, as we're, <clears throat> excuse me, as we're here for a few days, we begin to, as at least it appears to me, looking at you, we appear to, we begin to reconnect again to this, uh, what feels to me like an inexhaustible resource, which is the uh, experience of aliveness of here and now. I think of the words of Sri Nisargadatta where he says, reality is what makes the present so vital, so different from past and future, which are merely mental. And you can see when we spend a lot of our time in the imagined past and the imagined future, our energy system gets very diminished. And as we begin to wake up again to the present, it's as though we are plugging in again to this socket of inexhaustible um, aliveness, to life. Uh, not so much my life, but life, the life that we all share, that what lives inside of you lives inside of me. And that's why we begin to start to feel a little more connected to each other. And all because of activating this beautiful quality within our mind called, we call it mindfulness, it doesn't do it justice. It's this, it's this wakeful presence. Because you could ask, how do we go from this, this, how do we um, come out of this tangle of fear thinking and live in silence and flow down and down in ever-widening rings of being? Hafiz provides a, a poem that reminds us of what we're doing moment to moment in his poem called It Felt Love. How did the rose ever open its heart and give to this world all its beauty? It felt the encouragement of light against its being. Otherwise, we all remain too frightened. How did the rose ever open its heart and give to the world all its beauty? It felt the encouragement of light against its being. This is really the light of your own awareness. And as I was saying, looking at you after several days of practice, and I know many of you are probably a little bit weary from the rigors of sitting and walking, but 
from our end, and I think I can speak for the others, when we see you in the interviews, and as I look at you right now, you are beginning to brighten up. You look actually quite beautiful, radiant. And I felt today, and it really starts kind of on the third day, when you come in and we meet one, one by one, it's as though I'm, I'm getting a blessing from each person. You may not feel that way on the inside, but something's beginning to shine through. And perhaps you are getting glimpses of what that life is that you are, what that sense of presence is, that experience of being yourself, just here, just now. And you're probably beginning to see the difference between what it's like, what you are in your naturalness. That, that naturalness of you sitting here that can not be so easily described. What can you say about yourself sitting here? What can you really say? Other than, I am. I'm awake. You know, when the Buddha was asked, who he is, who, who are you? He didn't say, I'm a man, or I'm a woman, or I'm a, I'm a this, I'm a master, I'm that. All he could say was, I'm awake. It's clearly, he was in touch with that quality of existence, of being, being a human being. And a few of you have spoken about just touching the sense of being present and how it's produced a feeling of, of gratitude. Not gratitude for a, uh, because you became something super and successful, but just gratitude for, for being, for being present for once in the span of your life. Someone talked about just walking and knowing they were walking and, and just being in the naturalness of walking. It's sad that, that, that something so beautiful, uh, so simple, so near, can be so overlooked while we are continually going out of ourselves in search. But I was thinking today, when, as I was hearing some of these moments of appreciation that people were having in their simple experience, I was thinking of, of this simple poem from Thoreau where he said, I'm grateful for what I am and what I have. He says, my thanksgiving is perpetual. It's surprising how contented one can be with nothing definite, only a sense of existence. Oh, how I laugh at my vague, indefinite riches, for no run on my bank can drain it, for my wealth is not possession, but enjoyment of being. And the words of Emerson, as I look in this room, out at this room, what you are, shout so loudly, I cannot hear what you say. So you're probably beginning to feel the difference between what your being shouts out so loudly and what narrative is playing in your mind. How that narrative that plays in our mind, that version of ourselves, it's actually the version of someone who doesn't exist. It's, the aver it's a version of an imagined version of you. And that version is always got some reason or other why I can't be happy now. Any of you recognize that? Most versions that are playing in our minds, most of our thoughts are of some, you know, of course we have the beautiful, wise, insightful thoughts, the creative thoughts, the <laughs> compassionate thoughts, but more often than not, the narrative that runs through our mind is a narrative of dissatisfaction, of waiting, of wanting, of disliking, 
some version of the second noble truth that Sharda spoke about, of liking and disliking of that, the second noble truth, that the cause of stress, the cause of suffering, is this deep habit of mind, of tendency to want things to be different than the way they are, that expresses itself as, as this constant search, this profound drama of, I'll say, the imagined version of ourselves. And then in the midst of it all, as we sit here, can any of that story capture your immediate experience? Can any of that story of, of inadequacy, of being too much, not enough, less than, greater than, equal to, that's generating this constant creation of good, better, best. Can that capture what your present experience is? So we begin to understand the words of Henry Audubon when he said, if there's a difference between the bird and what the field guidebook says, believe the bird. <laughs> we have been going to the field guidebook for far too long. This habit of imagining ourselves to be this being of inadequacy or insufficiency, this view, which it's just a view, it's a point of view, dependent on thoughts. This the Buddha called uh, Sakyaditi or Sakayaditi, self-view. Also described it as avijja or ignorance. Because it, it is um, more often than not untrue. It's completely untrue, really. It's insulting much of the time. And uh, we become quite deluded by it. We literally take birth into that world of thinking. And it's painful. It's a source of great stress. The good news about practice is that light of attention begins to allow us to wake up. And it's so different to be living in that world of your thinking, convinced of your, of your deficiencies, your body formed around it and contracted and small and tight. Such a difference between being caught in that and waking up for a moment, say, oh, this is a self-idea. This is my story. This is a view. So again, as we sit here tonight, we can enjoy the, the reality as you've been hanging out a little bit more in reality. And you could say reality is that, that moment of us just being together. You could just, as Dujim Rinpoche put, after your last thought has ceased and before the next one arises, in that space or in that interval, isn't there, what are you then? after your last thought has ceased and before the next one arises. He says, isn't there a sense of presence, a bare awareness? You're still here, aren't you? Everything's being known. You might ask yourself, even as you sit here in this moment after your last thought has ceased and before the next arises, just an experiment. You can feel the body here. Feel your sense of being. Feel your... I wish I had your names. I, would, I, would think, I always think at this point, and when I talk about this, I think of my uh, 
six-year-old daughter, Molly, who had a birthday yesterday afternoon. And I slipped away from the retreat and went to her birthday party. And Molly, as usual, who is just a, a radiant being, was just being completely Molly. So uniquely Molly, just unselfconsciously Molly. Of course, I do see the beginnings of that, that narrative that says, hmm, I have curly hair, I'd like to have straight hair. <laughs> Mine's dark, I'd like it to be light. Or, uh, I want that flatsy doll. She's into flatsy dolls. <laughs> and you can feel the wheels turning. I can't be happy until I have that flatsy But for the most part, <laughs> she's still completely in touch with her molliness, her unique expression of life, her individuality, that all of you can taste as you sit here, your version of molliness. And in the moments of mindfulness, being simply present, we, we strengthen, we, we brighten that sense of whatever your version is. And so as Dujam Rinpoche says, is there not in this interval a, a kind of presence? In fact, if I asked you right now, stop being aware. Stop it. What shines immediately? This kind of bare awareness, this brightness, this light of attention, completely uncreated, so natural to us. And we have to ask ourselves in this interval, where is our misery if we're not looking back and not looking ahead? Where is it? We begin to see that in the midst of this, that our misery has something to do with um, that misidentification, that avijja, that misidentifying ourselves with this narrative that plays through our mind. The one who we imagine ourselves to be who truly does not exist. Now, as I said before, it doesn't mean you don't exist. It just means there's a difference between that field guidebook and you. Dujim doesn't stop there, of course, because he reminds us of our human condition. He says we don't stay very long in this gap, in this interval, in this space of openness. Isn't it true that a thought suddenly arises? He says, if you notice this thought, this thought is just another aspect of awareness. No big deal. Thoughts are beautiful. And as we introduce thoughts in the practice, it's so obvious that they're a natural part of our sense experience. We, we often say that a thought is to our door of perception called mind, as a sound is to the ear, as a smell is to the nose, as a taste is to the tongue. It's a natural experience. So if this thought is recognized as another sense experience, no problem, as you've probably noticed with everything. It's a changing condition. It arises and passes. A metaphor that's often used like clouds passing through an empty sky. It has no more reality than that. Empty. Like a, as a Tibetan line, like a footprint of a bird in emptiness. But if that thought goes unnoticed, what happens? The way Dujim Rinpoche describes it, he says, it spreads out into ordinary thinking, which he calls the chain of delusion. Because very quickly, we inadvertently, quite innocently, incarnate, enter into that stream of thoughts, and then start imagining, and then living our lives, our body conforming to the views that are going on in our mind. And that view that goes through our mind is a view of someone who is, because it's often very tethered to the body, it's someone who's getting old, how do you know your age when you're present? 
How do you even know when you're really present, whether you're a man or a woman, what day it is, what time it is? We see that there is a domain where all these things depend on our thinking. Happy to be able to frame my life as a, uh, in that way that I'm a man or I'm here at a particular time. I'm not saying we should throw these ideas or these concepts away. But there is in us something that is not, not so uh, bound by these ideas. But once we enter that world of thinking, we enter the world of time. And when we're in that world of time, we're often in hot pursuit of what are we in hot pursuit of? Happiness. But our mind, our thinking mind, tricks us into believing, as we've been saying in many different ways, tricks us into believing that I'm not going to find it right here. Maybe tomorrow. Maybe after the retreat. Maybe in another lifetime. Maybe after I've made my fortune. Maybe after I've lost my fortune. Maybe when I'm old. Meanwhile, our perception is colored in such a way that the present moment becomes somewhat of that, as I mentioned before, uh, a place we pass through on our way to somewhere else. Not remembering that all we have is this unfolding present moment. There is no other moment, any other moment other than the one where we are together is imaginary. I like that I can imagine other moments. That's no problem. But I certainly want to see the difference between my imagined version of reality and reality. And uh, so I'm, I find that when I'm in reality, my life is much more workable. I tend to feel a little less anxious a little less um, certain of my inadequacy. I can't find it even. How about you? Can you find it if you don't consult your memory? What do we experience? When I've asked other people in the past this question, all people can usually say is ease, peace, spaciousness, home, okay, sometimes some pain in the body. But until we overlay the story about that, that's just pain in the body. This, you could say, good news, this open secret that's always available, is what we begin to wake up to on retreat. So once we've entered into that stream of thinking, just in our innocentness, we just get completely deluded and confused. We all become deluded types. And you can see that all the different character types are based on that fundamental delusion, that self, that sakyaditi, that self-view. And the whole process happens really innocently. As Sharda mentioned last night, we have, these, we have this array of sense experiences. We have the, what, what's called in the teachings the six senses, the six sense doors, the bases, the, the, the doors are the eyes, are, you know, our senses. And the mind is called the sixth one. And all day long, all we really are experiencing, it's quite amazing to think about, all we actually experience is six things. The rest of what it seems like is a drama. It's, a, it's, a, it's an elaboration on, on these, six, uh, these six experiences. But with these six experiences, something you can begin to pay attention to. The foundation of mindfulness that we haven't gone into so much is in between the foundation of mindfulness of the body 
and the foundation of mind and the mental states and the thought formations and all that, there is a, there is a, a domain of experience that accompanies every single moment's experience. And that is the valence, the little tone that arises with each experience. As you've probably heard, it's either pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant or unpleasant. Innocently, inadvertently, really by law, when something is pleasant, it's followed by liking. And that produces a little charge, doesn't it? I like it. If you feel it inside, if you feel if a pleasant sight comes or a sound, that liking has a little charge to it. When it's unpleasant, immediately followed by not liking, as Sharda was saying, liking and disliking. And when it's neither pleasant or unpleasant, sometimes called neutral, we don't notice it. We space out. It's just not juicy enough for us. So especially with the liking and disliking, that little charge produces a little internal pressure. Of course, when that's practiced over and over, that little liking and disliking hardens into then grasping and then holding and then wanting and then pretty soon the pressure that builds up from just the, that beginning little reaction to that little tone, the pressure spawns this narrative in the mind, one way of talking about it. It just bursts forth from our mind a thought, I want something, I'm feeling something and I want to feel better. This, this burst of thought, this proliferation of thought, this complication of these six experiences, complication of reality, elaboration on reality, the Buddha called papancha. Generally, papancha, a traditional meaning, is the unbidden going of the mind away from the present to imagined experiences or objects. Any of you seen your mind do that? This is a I got from a friend, uh, our friend, Anna Douglas. She found this definition in some source. The propensity of the worldling's imagination to erupt in an effusion of mental commentary that obscures the bare data of experience, <laughs> or of cognition, excuse me. Needless to say, innocently we enter into that stream of countless, countless thoughts based on this hardened reactions of liking and disliking and wanting and the, that force of becoming, what the Buddha called the three kinds of, of craving that, are the, that ba form the basis of the second noble truth. Craving for pleasure or to get rid of the unpleasant, craving for becoming for existence, and then the more aversive, the extreme of the aversive is craving for non-existence, wanting it to shut down, wanting out. But the stream of thoughts that get spawned, someone said, some of you have heard this before, said that quite involuntarily, unbidden, literally 65,000 thoughts arise every day. And that 90% of them are repeats from the day before. <laughs> How amazing is that? Now, do you think each of us sits there and says, now think 65,000 thoughts? One of the things that you're probably more aware of and the reason why you're starting to feel a little life you're coming alive again, feeling the healing power of being of the light of awareness. You begin to see that you're just trying to be here. And quite involuntarily, this whole waterfall of thinking arises. And of course, the habit is, because we've taken that as our, 
taken thinking so much as our refuge, as our source of identity, as our source of pleasure, we immediately enter into it. And, and fortunately, on a retreat, you start to realize, you wake up, you go, whoa, where have I been? I haven't really, nothing's really happened, but I've imagined I've been off on this incredible drama of how terrible everything is. And now I'm awake. And based on present, as a teacher named Douglas Harding said, based on present evidence, if I'm just here and I just, that drama, it's, it's, it's all, it's a dream, it's a bubble. But that stream of thoughts, that sakya, that, that self-view that plays, it's all about me and mine. All about me and mine. Everything becomes about me. If somebody comes in the door and the door opens loudly, it's about me. What does that have to do with me? But <laughs> if somebody's sitting straight in the room, it has to do with me. If somebody's making noise, it has to do with me. If somebody's taking too much food, somebody's walking through the line too slow, whatever it is, it has to do with me. Everything gets tethered to this self-idea. And because it's an idea, and I, what is the nature of ideas? They're, they're wonderful, but they're completely, utterly insubstantial. Because of that, we're left having our identity tethered to them. We're left in a state of complete insecurity. Somebody tells you, somebody looks at you and says, there's something wrong with you. And if that goes against our cherished view of ourselves, look how quickly we move into some kind of reaction. Those of you who've sat with me know that I've, I've told many stories over the years about sitting with a Burmese teacher, for, a fierce teacher uh, for many years, who, who was supposedly uh, very astute at seeing different character types come into his, his interview room. And so he would look at your character type and then find some kind of means of, of showing you what you needed to see. And so, in my case, he thought I was some kind of grasping type and grasping at some inflated view of myself. I think. Who knows? I'll never know. And see, that's what our mind also does. It speculates and then makes convincing conclusions <laughs> that we can not have any idea is true. And then, and then of course, we can really um, just go into, well, I'll tell you the story first and you can see what happened. <laughs> he was incredibly sweet to me when I first started going to my interviews. And he would, I'd walk into the room and he'd, said, he'd say to me, Yogi? Hello, Yogi? And he'd smile. <laughs> and then I would, um, I would report my experience and, and he would nod and very good and really, and so I got very pumped up. <laughs> it was all about me. But then he saw how susceptible I was to that particular worldly wind. You know about the eight worldly winds? Praise and blame. And the others are loss and gain, fame and shame, pain and pleasure and pain. But he saw that I was a little bit susceptible to praise. And so the next few times that I went into the interview room, first one, he looked at me and he picked up a book and started reading. <laughs> Just that gesture of ignoring. Now we can say, we can all be sympathetic. You know, oh, anybody would react that way. But I crumbled. And then as I did my reporting, the idea in the reporting was to say exactly what your experience is. When I noticed the rise and fall of my breath, it felt like this. And when, and I was with my breath for a little bit and then my mind wandered. And when I noticed it, 
uh, something else came, and so that you begin to notice just the bare sequence of experiences so that you can start to see the difference between the, what's actually happening in the field guide book. You can start to see what your mind, how your mind embellishes things. So I thought I was reporting impeccably, but every word out of my mouth, he just sneered and threw it right back at me as though I was the worst yogi that walked in the room. So my view tethered to these ideas of greatness completely was shattered. And of course, I didn't like someone else being, uh, being able to impact me, so I, what did I do? I planned my revenge. <laughs> I devoted the next days attributing my collapse to him instead of where the real source of collapse is in any case, which is the loss of presence, the loss of being present, the loss of, the rem of remembering that so hard to use language sometimes, that no one can define my happiness or unhappiness. And to the degree that he could, showed me that any sense of well-being that I had experienced from his praise was uh, what the Buddha called uh, lokiya sukha, worldly happiness, worldly pleasure, which he called also the happiness of bondage, the happiness of slavery, slave to praise, and in some cases we're a slave to blame. And it's because the activity, partly because the activity of the self-view is always about wanting to be great. And it's so innocent, wanting to be great, because we, we're, we think that that's what will make us happy. And as Eckhart Tolle reminds us, greatness is a mental abstraction and a favorite fantasy of the ego. The paradox is that the foundation for greatness is honoring the small things of the present moment instead of pursuing the idea of greatness. The present moment is always small in the sense that it is always simple, but concealed within it lies the greatest power. Like the atom, it is one of the smallest things yet contains enormous power. Is there anything, way of improving on this immediate present? So different from past and future, which are merely mental. We have to have mercy and, and kindness toward these dramas that play through our mind. Our identities have formed in time. As one teacher puts it, they formed in time like the sand grains of the Ganges River. They've, they've, been, they've been formed through the impact of so many conditions for each of us, our cultural origins, our gender, our, all, the, all the family influences, our teachers, our culture. We, all of our sense of self has been formed by these you could call them non-personal causes. And it's such an innocent process to our mind. Its nature is to take anything and make it about me. And so that when that habit is practiced over and over, whether it's around our, um, our political views, whether it's around our religious views, whether it's around our uh, sexual identity or our, whatever it is, we form this sense of, of meaning and mind around that. And our, it affects our bodies. And, we, and it, we attempt to use everything to provide that source of, of greatness. A little passage from Calvin and Hobbes that kind of illustrates the way that we set up this this endless search for, the, for greatness. Calvin, or Hobbes says to Calvin, aren't you supposed to be doing your homework now? 
And Calvin says, I quit doing homework. Homework is bad for my self-esteem. <laughs> it is, sure, it sends the message that I don't know enough. All that emphasis on right answers makes me feel bad when I get them wrong. So, and so, uh, so he continues, so instead of trying to learn, I'm just concentrating on liking myself as I am. And Hobbes says, so your self-esteem is enhanced by remaining an ignoramus. <laughs> Calvin says, please, let's call it informationally impaired. <laughs> But we get very caught up in the in the um, in the self ideas and the self views. There's it's so much so that there are just endless cartoons around and on the internet. One of them is the uh, rhymes with orange checklist of feeling pathetic. This is when we put ourselves down. First one: choose someone and compare yourself unfavorably to them. Examine your face closely in the mirror. Note all faults, <laughs> flaws. Relive, relive embarrassing, awful moments that occurred years ago. Make a mental note of all the people you regularly disappoint. Disregard all compliments, especially from people who supposedly love you. <laughs> Resign yourself to believing that from now on, this is how you will always feel. Unfortunately, these these identities are insecure because they're bound in time. That whole story is bound in, and because time is always running out. We often have this thought, I don't have enough time. It's all based on the notion that if I'm ever going to be happy, that it will take time. And this is a, actually, a, this is a delusion. This is avijja. How long does it take to be here? You know, it takes how many hours to get to Los Angeles or to Lake Tahoe? How long does it take to get to yourself? And then notice what it's like when you're just here and you stay here for a moment. What's missing? What's lacking? Where's the unhappiness? But our mind, once that thought arises, goes unnoticed, spreads out into ordinary thinking, enters into that chain of delusion, we're off on running. And then the end of the rainbow is the imagined future. And then, of course, how do we feel as a result of that? We start feeling really restless and worried because maybe the future won't deliver. And it just keeps us in that state of becoming, of waiting, of hoping, expecting. And if, in meanwhile, to the degree that, that that identity and that self story is tethered to our body, our body is aging. And I can't tell it not to get old. Can't tell it not to get sick. It operates according to its own laws. So much different the experience of the body, of course, conventionally, it's me, it's mine, this is my body, it's not your body, but ultimately this body is not me, not mine. It's not owned, as Jack Cornfield says, it's a rent-a-body. <laughs> so our thoughts are insecure, our body is changing, our, we're caught in time, and time is always running out. And this is partly why we experience such weariness when we come on retreat, and why it's such a, a beautiful healing as we begin to let the light touch uh, these, uh, this, these places of pain. Kabir speaks about this, this mind as we can begin to start to wake up and notice these habits of mind, this proliferation of thought, this way that we create ourselves. In his poem, he says, Friend, please tell me about this world I hold to and keep spinning out. I gave up sewn clothes and I wore a robe and I noticed one day that the cloth was well woven. 
So I bought some burlap, but I still throw it elegantly over my shoulder. I pulled back my sexual longings, and now I discover I'm angry a lot. I gave up rage, and now I notice that I'm greedy all day. I worked hard at, the, at dissolving the greed, and now I'm proud of myself. When the mind wants to break its link with the world, it still holds on to one thing. Sakiditi, this view of me, me, meing and mine. One day a rabbi in a frenzy, this is the reverse identification with, with being uh, nothing or nobody. One day a rabbi in a frenzy of religious passion rushed before the ark, fell to his knees and started beating his breast crying, I'm nobody, I'm nobody. The cantor of the synagogue, impressed by the example of spiritual humility, joins the rabbi on his knees calling out, I'm nobody, I'm nobody. The Seamus, or the custodian, watching from the corner, couldn't restrain himself either. He joined the other two on his knees, calling out, I'm nobody, I'm nobody. At which point the rabbi, nudging the cantor with his elbow, pointed at the custodian and said, look who thinks he's nobody. <laughs> The way, that, the way that this self-view is formed in the world of um, our thinking, the, there are basically three kinds of complication or, or propancha, or proliferation that our mind does. And the first one that I've been alluding to all night is the, it's called tanha papancha. Tanha is the word for craving. Uh, and, and also the tanha papancha also includes the opposite of craving, the, Ill, you know, the, the craving to get rid of, the craving for more. So it's, it manifests as the wanting mind, what the Buddha called one of the, the main hindrances to our sense of freedom, as we tend to get caught in that wanting mind. And the wanting mind entrances us into thinking that I can't be happy now, that the best is yet to come, that the future is my source of happiness, and pretty soon we're, we're living in this contracted space of waiting or wanting, a suspended well-being, just hanging there waiting, hoping that something works out. And this is the, that's the effect on our bodies, and the good news about practice is we can start to notice the story, as we've talked about, the story of wanting. Tanha Papancha, how your mind can just spin fantasies, exotic fantasies, spin the reverse side, spin exotic worries, and how we can really tie ourselves in knots, either in our great fantasy or our great worry, or our great, at least in my case, that revenge fantasy was a, you know, very aggressive. I was just caught in that little drama. This is a form of, of tanha papancha, the pro proliferation of thoughts, um, the effusion of thoughts about an imagined um, object or place that takes me away from my immediate experience. In our practice, we wake up. We notice that state of mind. Oh, this is wanting. We notice the story of it. We feel it in our body. We begin to recognize that wanting is a changing condition, a weather pattern, the thoughts are empty bubbles, and we can, in, sometimes right in the middle of it all, see them arise and see that arise and pass, and just consider for a moment the amount of suffering that we've saved ourselves by making that, that subtle but quite profound shift from being carried along by that fantasy to waking up and knowing, oh, this is wanting. This may take a few minutes to read, but this one poem or story from a poet named George Bilger just describes somewhat the way that our mind elaborates fantasies. And this is an example of what you may experience on the retreat that's called the, the VR. It's called the, the VR is the initials for Vipassana Romance, where someone in the room you or in the retreat, you like something about them, their color of their shawl or their, their 
the way they walk or the way they do whatever they do. And that produces a little pleasant feeling. And that pleasant feeling is followed by liking. And pretty soon it's wanting. And then it's, I have to have this. And you're off and running in dating, mating, marriage, divorce, what, <laughs> all in the span of a few minutes. <laughs> but sometimes it lingers actually for days and, you, and you're constantly fixated on that person's presence. Any of you have, oh, no, you don't have to say it. <laughs> but it's poignant how much of the time we can spend in these fantasies and how they can, if, if they go unnoticed, they can deprive us of the beauty and life of the present moment. From George Bilger's poem called Unwise Purchases, because it's often about uh, shopping and fantasy. They sit around the house not doing much of anything. The box set of the complete works of Verdi, unopened, the complete Proust, unread, the French cut silk suits, shirts, which hang like expensive ghosts in the closet and make me look exactly like the kind of middle-aged man who would wear a French cut silk shirt. The reflector telescope, I thought would unlock the mysteries of the heaven, but which I only used once or twice to try to find something heavenly in the windows of the high rise down the road, and which now stares disconsolately at the ceiling when it could be examining the Crab Nebula. The 30-day course in Spanish whose text I never opened, whose dozen cassette tapes remain unplayed, save for tape one, where I never learned whether the suave American conversing with the sultry-sounding desk clerk at a Madrid hotel about the possibility of obtaining a room actually managed to check in. <laughs> I like to think that one thing led to another between them, and that by tape six or so, they're happily married and raising a bilingual child in Seville or Terre Haute. But I'll never know. Suddenly I realize I've constructed the perfect home for a sexy Spanish-speaking astronomer who reads Proust while listening to Italian arias. And I wonder if somewhere in this teeming city there lives a woman, say, a, with, say, a fencing foil gathering dust in the corner near her unused easel, a rainbow of oil paints drying in their tubes. On the table where the violin she bought on a whim lies entombed in the permanent darkness of its locked case next to the abandoned chess set. A woman who has always dreamed of becoming the kind of woman the man I've always dreamed of becoming <laughs> has always dreamed of meeting. And while the two of them discuss star clusters and Cezanne, while they fence delicately in Castilian Spanish to the strains of Rigoletto, <laughs> she and I will stand in the steamy kitchen fixing up a little risotto, enjoying a modest cabernet while talking over a day so ordinary as to seem miraculous. Look at how far we can wander and overlook this simple. Of course, the reverse, the reverse side of the VR is called the VV, you know, the Vipassana Vendetta, where someone triggers that aversive <laughs> fantasy and they become the reason for all of your misery on the retreat. It's either they, and as I sometimes talk about on retreats, the, um, over the years, and I know this, you, none of you would do this, but but it can get the, the aversive mind can project that loss of presence on anything. And often it's been on the food or on the teachers, it really just elaborate hate mail. And, uh, and it, but this is what our minds do. So we try to wake up and notice we're doing it. And we try to have a sense of humor about it as well. An example just of how we can proliferate in an aversive fantasy that I like. A woman wants some potatoes for a meal she's cooking, so she sends her husband to the marketplace to buy potatoes. As he walks out the door, she calls after him, be sure to get a good price. So all the way to the marketplace, the man is thinking about potatoes and what he'll have to pay. If he buys the best potatoes, he knows he'll have to pay more than if he buys the lesser quality. On the other hand, the lesser quality are just that, not so good. 
In fact, he knows he'll have to be very careful in buying other than the top price potatoes because the seller might try to stick him with a bad potato, a rotten potato, when he thinks of someone cheating him. So it can happen just in our thought. <laughs> when he thinks of someone cheating him by giving him a rotten potato, he gets really mad. Why do people have to be so greedy and stick me with a rotten potato? Just at this point, he reaches the stall of the potato seller and screams at him. <laughs> you can keep your rotten potatoes. <laughs> and he walks up. So the, I went through somewhat the second kind of, um, the second kind of uh, papancha called ditti papancha. Uh, ditti means views. And of course, the main view that, that can proliferate a lot is the self-view. But it can be views about our situation, can be views uh, about the world. We can just spin and spin. And views about, what if I say the words healthcare reform? <laughs> we can become so bound in a state of weight, holding to our views and in such conflict that it's so easy to lose that sense of presence but to be able to wake up and say, oh, this is papancha. This is thinking. This is views and opinions. What a great relief, even if it's just for a moment in the span of one of those, those tracks. Views about ourselves, about our situation, just to go into it a little bit, think about the view that, that so, e so easily can come into our minds, something like a view that, especially when we're not feeling well. Any of you ever not feel so well, and you'll say to somebody, I'm sick. So you're really talking about your situation. I'm sick. And, you know, I had a lot of experience of this being in India, where I, I got every kind of bug imaginable, because my, my insides were not acclimated to the flora and the fauna there. And I remember going to see this teacher there named Punjaji, and after having been kind of delirious and feeling a little better and kind of dragging myself over to see him. And I went into the room with him. He was very keen at seeing the way that we can just spin out in our, in our views of our situation. And of course, some illness, the illness is real. And many of us here have either are in the midst of chronic illness or know people who are, you know, at, at some point in our life, every one of us will. But having an illness, being in the life of an illness, and the story about our situation can be very different. So I went to this teacher and I realized I was, um, I was feeling a little better, but he asked me when I walked into his room, he said, how are you feeling? And I said, well, I'm, I'm better, but I'm still sick. And he looked at me and he said, where is sick? <laughs> and I couldn't find it. And I realized at that moment that I had just built up this whole embellished identity and it was getting me really down. So you can watch the way views about your situation can, can really impact what would otherwise be maybe really unpleasant, but it gets embellished so much with a lot of papancha, a lot of worry and a lot of extra. So we can see that. Last but not least, since we're running out of time, Well, first, for a moment, let's just we'll take a pause and just reflect on one of those view. What are the views that you have of yourself, of your situation, that's so common? It may be I'm not, I'm too something. Anybody willing to say in the room what you, what you would often, what you say to yourself? I'm too uh, impatient, or I'm too. I'm not enough. Any of you ever have that one? Not good enough. Let's just look at that for a minute. I'm not good enough. It's five words. I'm not good enough. When we really look at that, it's five words, and you you unravel you unravel that word: enough, good, not, am I? And for just a moment, we just go. We just remove all of that. What are we left with? So you can see how these simple 
self-ideas and the proliferation that follows from them can lead us into imagined worlds of such um, mistaken identity, missing your beautiful presence, your version of Maliness. Again, last but not least is the third and perhaps one of the most lethal kinds of papancha. It's called mana papancha, or mana is the word in Pali for conceit. And in this case, it's the, uh, the conceit, it's called the conceit I am, but it usually refers to the narrative in our mind that either puts ourselves above, below, or equal to someone. And so there's the, there's the kind of papancha about, yeah, I'm, I'm as good as they are, and that produces a certain kind of story. I'm less than they are, which is what I was just referring to, or I'm greater than they. Both, all of these can produce, you can go from feeling completely open, present, looking over at your neighbor, you see them sitting still, and all of a sudden, you feel like crap. <laughs> because you thought, well, why aren't I sitting that still? They're sitting more still than me. Pretty soon, you're off and running, perfectly wonderful day turns into a misery. We can become aware of this process. This is just the comparing mind. This is mana papancha. Comparing our mind to ideals, that story of how am I doing, that continual narrative, that report card that runs through the mind. This is just a version of the comparing to some ideal. I should be farther than I am right now. I should have had the great cry already. I should be through this already. You know, it's always comparing to an ideal and then spinning out about it. And this is really lethal. And I think I'll just end with a, a passage from Ed Brown, author of the Tassajara bread books and some other cookbooks, just about facing our life as it is. It says, when I first started cooking at Tassajara, I had a problem. I couldn't get to couldn't get my biscuits to come out the way that they were supposed to. I'd follow a recipe, try variations, but nothing worked. The biscuits just didn't measure up. Growing up, I had made two kinds of biscuits. One was from Bisquick, the other from Pillsbury. For the Bisquick biscuit, you added milk to the mix and then blobbed the dough on spoonfuls on the pan, and you didn't even need to roll them out. The biscuits from Pillsbury came in a kind of cardboard can. You wrapped the can on the corner of the counter, and it popped open. Then you twisted the can open more, put the pre-made biscuits on the pan, and baked them. I really like those Pillsbury, Pillsbury biscuits. <laughs> Isn't that what biscuits should taste like? Mine just weren't coming out right. It's wonderful and amazing the ideas we get about what biscuits should taste like or what a life should look like. Compared to what? Canned biscuits from Pillsbury? Leave it to, leave it to Beaver? People who ate my biscuits could extol their virtues, eating one after another, but to me, these perfectly good biscuits just weren't coming out right. Finally, one day came a shifting into place, an awakening, not right compared to what? Oh my, I'd been trying to make canned Pillsbury biscuits. <laughs> then came an exquisite moment of actually tasting my biscuits without comparing them to some previously hidden standard. They were wheaty, flaky, buttery, sunny, earthy, real, as Silke, Rilke's sonnet proclaims, they were incomparably alive, present, vibrant, in fact, much more satisfying than any memory. These occasions can be so stunning, so liberating, these moments when you realize your life is just fine as it is. Thank you. Only the insidious comparison to a beautifully prepared, beautifully packaged product made it seem insufficient. Trying to produce a biscuit, a life with no dirty bowls, no messy feelings, no depression, no anger, was so frustrating. Then savoring, actually tasting the present moment of experience, how much more complex and multifaceted, how unfathomable. A thought of feeling ants crawling on the ground in the sunlight. Well, to heck with it. I say, wake up, smell the coffee. How about savoring some old, good whole, old home cooking, the biscuits of today?
So let's just sit quietly. Thank you so much for your attention. We have 20 minutes for walking practice, so please take advantage of these precious um, moments of presence. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.